Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Before we start, I just want to say Decoder was nominated for a Webby Award for Best Technology Podcast, and you can vote for us to win a People's Voice Webby. So a link to the voting is in the show notes. We would really appreciate your vote. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. If you've been listening to Decoder, you know I'm pretty skeptical of crypto, but that I really want to come by that skepticism honestly, and by talking to people who are actually investing in and building crypto startups and technology. There's a lot of money and attention and energy, both literal and metaphorical, in crypto. And I think it's important to ask the questions really listen to the answers. So we've done a few of these episodes now, from Jonah Ehrlich, who did the Constitution DAO, to Tony Evans, a law professor focused on the blockchain. And of course, Steve Aoki was just on the show for the artist perspective on NFTs. But this conversation is one that I've wanted to have from the very beginning. This week, I'm talking to Chris Dixon, who leads crypto investing at the storied Silicon Valley venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z. He's responsible for leading funding rounds into Coinbase, which went public about a year ago, the NFT marketplace OpenSea, and most recently Yuga Labs, which is behind the Bored Ape Yacht Club, among others. Chris is also a prolific user of Twitter, where he posts lengthy threads about crypto and Web3 and what they might mean for the world. That means Chris is at once one of the biggest investors in the space and its biggest booster. He's also a smart guy who's been around for a long time. I've known Chris for years. He's seen a lot of tech hype come and go, and he's really all in on Web3. So I've been asking Chris to come on the show for months now, and he finally agreed. I wanted to push him on a couple specific things. One, why blockchain technology is necessary for some of the business models the Web3 community talks about. Two, whether there are any killer apps or uses for blockchain right now in Web3 that justify the energy consumption and climate impact. And three, how he as an investor expects to see a return on the money he's putting into Web3 companies. Like I said, Chris and I have known each other for a while, so fair warning, we just kind of got into it. This episode is in the weeds, and we may have gotten excited and talked over each other here and there, but On the whole, I think heated but respectful disagreement is in short supply these days, so we just kept it all in. In any case, I think this episode's a good one, and no matter what side of the crypto debate you're on, you're going to find something here you hadn't thought about before. A few notes before we start. Chris and I make a lot of comparisons to various nerdy internet standards, 
So here is say SMTP or Simple Mail Transport Protocol. That's an email standard. We also talk about RSS, which stands for Really Simple Syndication. That's how websites send out feeds, what they publish. And we talk about Mastodon, which is a decentralized social networking system. Okay, Chris Dixon, general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Here we go. Chris Dixon, you are a general partner at the storied Silicon Valley venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, or A16Z, where you lead A16Z Crypto. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. Listeners know we always ask a bunch of what I think of as the decoder questions about structure and decision making. I really want to talk about Web3 with you, so let's do those Mm -hmm. as a little bit of a lightning round. Sure. Uh, How is Andreessen Horowitz structured? Yeah, great question. So, and it actually has changed a lot over the over the recent years. We used to be like when I joined the firm in 2013, it was sort of just kind of a traditional venture firm with a group of investors, what we call general partners. And then kind of the different thing with our firm was that we have what we call operating teams, which are teams whose job it is to support our portfolio companies. And that was kind of a new idea that Ben and Mark, the founders of the firm had. They had been entrepreneurs in the past, and they had sort of wished that their VCs would do kind of more than just provide money and advice and would actually kind of supplement their network and introduce them to people and, you know, help them recruit and just a whole bunch of different things. So they built the firm with that in mind. Over the last few years, we realized that certain areas such as Web3 are just so different than other areas. So, for example, we have a bio fund, we have a fintech practice, we have an enterprise software practice. They're just really different. There's different uh, expertise required, different people involved, different kind of networks of companies and other sorts of things. So over the last few years, we really kind of split it out. So I'm part of the firm, but really run kind of an autonomous unit. Our crypto Web3 team is now at about 60 people. So we're, we're pretty significant. And that's grown a lot over the last few years. Of that 60 people, about 15 are on the investment team. I'm one of four general partners who lead investments. And then we have about 10 junior people under them who support um, and then the other sort of 45 are in our operating team. So their jobs are to help our companies, uh, everything from recruiting talent to business development, research, kind of computer science. Like if they're working on cutting edge problems, we have a team that, that helps with that. Uh, security, that's a big issue in the space. So we have a now a five-person security team. They'll do things like audit their smart contracts and a bunch of other kind of things. Uh, we have a, a marketing and communications team. You may know Sonal, who... Uh, built out the firm's podcast. She just came over to our team and we're going to ramp that up. And the way we think about the comm side is not really for us. It's really to kind of evangelize the space and explain what what sometimes are kind of difficult concepts. So we really want to make an investment in that. Anyway, so we have this sort of broad team there. And, you know, and we do, as I said, sort of two things, as you imagine, we meet entrepreneurs and lead investments and then sort of get involved with those companies and help them out. And that's kind of our core activity. So you said there's four general partners. You've got a couple of funds. It's a few billion dollars in funds for crypto startups. How much is it exactly? The last one's two point two billion for that five fifty three fifty. So I think that's around three billion. Where does that money come from? Yeah, so we go raise money um, as our companies do. Our LP, we call them LPs, limited partners. Our LPs are everything from university endowments to foundations, so sort of nonprofits. If you, so universities and nonprofits, for those who don't know, they basically have two sides of the organization. There's the side that gives out money and the side that invests money. And so we go talk to the, to the folks who invest money. Sometimes it's, you know, 
friend, high net worth friends, entrepreneurs who've been successful, things like that. So it's a collection of different groups. Generally, the, the kind of unifying factor with our LPs is they're people who, this goes back to, I, don't, I won't go into all the details, but kind of venture capital began uh, probably 40, 50 years ago in its modern form. Often it's called the Yale model. This, uh, David Swenson, who, who ran Yale's endowment, had the realization that they had a very long time horizon with their capital, right? They're obviously universities operate on decades, if not centuries, time horizons. And they had all these smart students leaving who were starting companies. And they sort of made the connection of what, you know, maybe we could take that capital that's very patient and give it to these founders who also have a long time horizon, right? You invest in a venture-backed startup, you may not see your money for 10, if not 15 years, right? So you have to have a really long time horizon. So that was sort of the origin of the venture capital industry, um, was that kind of the, the connection between those sources of capital, those long-term sources of capital, and the founders who had a long time horizon and what they were building. So you've got long-term sources of capital, you've got founders who are going to build on decades, potentially, time horizons. You, the VC, sit in the middle. How do you make decisions? This is like the classic decoder question. It's a really good question. And by the way, this is such an important thing in our business because it's very easy to get wrong. And I've certainly gotten it wrong. And I think, for example, to me, the most common failure mode in investing and in venture capital is decisions by committee. So a group of people get together and because of various politics or economics or whatever, the or maybe social dynamics, like who knows what it is. Let's say you have 10 people and they all have to come to consensus on what's a good investment. In my experience, the nature of good startup investments is they generally have like one thing that's amazing and a bunch of stuff that's kind of messed up. Right? Yeah. Um, and it's just, it, look, it's just the nature of startups. Like it's just, they're, they're just, they're very hard and there's a lot of stuff going on and stuff is often going wrong, right? But the good ones have some kind of magic superpower, right? Some incredible breakthrough in technology or there's some great market insight or they, for whatever reason, built a product that the market just loves. But, you know, often like, look, it's like Twitter fail whale and, you know, you see these things over and over. <laughs> like, it's like, think about Twitter. Like we all know Twitter. I'll use that as an example. Like that was clearly, you go back 10 years ago, a product that I think you and I and other kind of tech people loved. And I'm sure the numbers are going up and everything else, but there were management changes and, you know, fail whale and just like, what's the business model, right? And so you could, you could imagine if a committee looked at that saying, wow, I don't know, like, how do, how do we get to consensus? So what I've learned, and this is the way we operate, is we, we have the sort of the, the solo decision maker model. So what we'll do is, you know, one of the general partners will sponsor an investment and we'll, we'll have a discussion. We'll have a vigorous discussion. I think that's important. You know, I think you want to kind of get to the truth and not delude yourself. But I, I believe it's very, very important to have individual decision makers who are closest to the topic and, and know it the best and not have kind of decision by committee. And I think that's the number one failure mode in venture capital. I don't know other areas of investment, but I, I'm guessing it's also the failure mode for those areas. I think it's a general failure mode in management, kind of consensus seeking. You know, I think, by the way, for recruiting, I feel the same way is that like we, we very much believe in, we call it kind of the Ocean's Eleven model, where you know, if you think about Ocean's Eleven, right, there's like the people that blow stuff up, there's the person who does the backflip, you know, like if you went and sort of tried to find like an all around great person, you'd have a different group than if you went out and said, I want to get a specialist in each area. I want to get the greatest person. I just want to point out that this makes you George Clooney. Like you've just constructed a <laughs> metaphor in which you are George Clooney. I, I, I definitely, George Clooney or Brad Pitt is, is my preference. So, you know, <laughs> Brad is a specialist. <laughs> that's, that's fine. No, you, you go get it. Um, in that model, right? A bunch of institutions, with a lot of money, give you yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. You go seek out founders. Mm -hmm. How does Andreessen make money? The firm? Yeah. 
I mean, this is standard in venture capital I'm about to describe is but there's something called carry and carry is basically a percentage of the profits. We all get a salary, but it's not the significant money in the business. That's sort of more to cover the bills and things. But the way you make kind of significant money is, let's say someone give, they give us a billion dollars. We have to first return that billion dollars before we make any money. In fact, we have to return not only the billion dollars, but all the fees that we charge to pay salaries and rent and all the other kinds of things. So we have to like completely pay everything back. And then above that, we take a percentage of the, of the profits. And that's how it works throughout venture capital. So it's different in hedge funds and things where they have this what's called mark to market where where they can actually not have paid the money back, but just have the sort of paper profits and take profits on that. I like how venture works. Uh, to me, it's sort of like a startup. It's very simple. You give us money and I won't take anything until I fully paid back every dollar I took. And then on the profits, you take something. So I think it's a very simple, nice model. And we're fully aligned with our investors. That's how it works. And it's pretty much standard across the industry. And I'll make it one step more granular. How does a general partner like yourself get paid? Basically, of that pool of money that I just described, we split that up across the team. So everyone on our team gets some percentage of that. Percentages vary by seniority and things like that. But, but every single person, all 62 people on our team, gets some portion of that. That's great. All right. Those are my lightning round questions. I just, I think they're important to ask everybody. Yeah, no, I think it's great. Yeah. Let's talk about Web3. You are responsible for a ton of money flowing into Web3. Andreessen Horowitz generally is responsible for a ton of money into Web3, but you're, the, you're one of the solo decision makers. So you personally are responsible for a lot of it. Give me the elevator definition of Web3. I think your definition is one of the most important definitions to get. The way I think about the history of the web is in three eras. Uh, the first, what we call Web 1, I think of as roughly 1990 to 2005. And the key feature of Web 1 was that kind of the platform that you built on was the web or on email. They were open protocols designed by, you know, if you go back even before 1990, designed by the government and academia and for a bunch of great accident of history reasons, those became the kind of the governing protocols of the early internet. And I think that was a very positive thing for a number of reasons. One, um, I think it was good for innovation and entrepreneurship. So if you were an entrepreneur building a website in the 1990s, you, you know, if you were Larry and Sergey or, you know, a small business person, for example, right, or just a creative person, and you put up a website and you built up an audience, you truly had that audience, Right. You couldn't have sort of a Twitter or Facebook or Apple step in the middle and say, hey, I'm going to change the algorithm. I'm going to lower your reach. You know, everyone who's built on top of a social network has had this experience where your reach is lowered. You couldn't have the economics change. Like, hey, I'm going to take, you know, there's what's called a take rate, right? Which is like Apple takes 30% and et cetera. The take rate couldn't change. The rules couldn't change, right? I mean, the web had rules like you can't put up illegal content. It would get taken down. DMCA, copyright, all this other kind of stuff. But they were rules built through democratic legislative processes. I, well, I would argue, look, there, there may be limits or not, but there were rules and they were rules decided by, I think, in the kind of right way. Then you had Web 2 come along and Web 2, I think of as roughly 2005 to 2020. And I was involved in some of that. I don't recall. I think you were, you saw some of that too, like kind of the early, like kind of RSS, early social networks, everything else. And it was a really exciting time because I think people started to realize that websites could be more than kind of just consumptive. And you could be interactive, right? And so instead of just sort of reading the New York Times, you could now create a website like Facebook or Blogger or Twitter or Tumblr where anybody could come along and be their own publisher. Um, and so that was the beginning of social networking. You had things like YouTube. It said anyone can be a broadcaster, right? And I think that was a really positive thing. It you know, had this democratizing uh, effect. It also brought these, you know, really powerful services to billions of people. You know, then you had the sort of mobile phones accelerate it. 
And you have billions of people who now, you know, can type into their phone and read Wikipedia and watch YouTube. And so there were a lot of positive things. I think there was a big negative thing with Web2, which is we basically handed over the power of kind of the effective de facto control of the Internet to five or so companies. So instead of the web being governed by open protocols, the web is effectively now, I mean, there are the open protocols, they exist, you can still go to websites, but effectively the web, like in practice, most of the power and most of the money goes to Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, you know, and then maybe a handful of a Twitter and a handful of other smaller companies. Um, And so for example, I'll just give you one of the reasons I got into Web3, if you may remember the, when Twitter changed their API, in 2000, I think it was 11 or so. So there was a big wave of startups, including a lot of my friends, who built Twitter startups. That was a thing, 2009, 2010. There was you know, Tweety and TweetDeck and all sorts of API services. And there was a VC firm started that literally were only doing Twitter apps. <laughs> like people thought of it as kind of the new web, right? Like a new platform. But then they, you know, th- there was this very harsh lesson, which is Twitter at some point decided, hey, we need to control. Remember for a long time, Twitter needed to have a client software. We're gonna have client software. We're gonna have an ad-based model. Boom, change the API. That whole industry died, right? Same thing happened with the Facebook platform. For me, that was very influential, personally. That was when I started to, we didn't call it Web3 then, but this is like, you know, 2012, 13. For me, that, what the realization was, we used to build these really important kind of platform services as protocols, but now they're being built as companies. And so when I first saw Bitcoin, for example, one of the interesting things to me, like, I'm less interested in personally in Bitcoin and kind of the financial aspects of it. And it was much more architecturally, this is a really interesting way to build something, right? And so anyway, so Web3, as in my mind, is, if we can do it the right way, is kind of the best of both worlds of Web1 and Web2. So the advanced functionality that we've come to like from Web2 services, the slick user interfaces, the ability to sort of read and write, as we say, to sort of you know, both consume and publish, but then also having kind of the predictability and reliability and neutrality of Web1 protocols. Well, and I would also add, and the ability for, very importantly, the ability for creative people, businesses, and startups to reach audiences directly and truly have a relationship with those audiences that isn't mediated by algorithms and advertising, which is, I think, where we are today. There's like four concepts in there. One, you talked about protocols. There are many ways to talk about protocols at many layers of the stack, right? You are not talking about replacing SSL or TCP IP, right? The transport layer protocols that you're not. No, no, no. I think those, no, those are all great. Those are all, these are higher levels on the stack. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about HTTPS and SMTP for email. I guess it's IMAP for email, right? Like those protocols that people could build websites on could build email services on, set up a server, communicate with an audience, and an audience comes to you. Yes, like I think you could build a protocol, like something that we're investing in now and a lot of entrepreneurs are working on are protocols similar to SMTP. I would sort of call them adjacent to SMTP, but which support, uh, instead of just sort of email use cases, would also support Twitter use cases or Discord use cases, but they're protocols that let you build services in the same way. In the same way, with, so with SMTP, right, it's an open protocol, no one controls it. And then you do a lot of the work at the client level. So Gmail, Outlook, you know, superhuman, whatever it might be. And so imagine a world where you could have similarly a protocol that, that is similar like SMTP, but for Discord, like SMTP, but for Twitter. And then you had a variety of clients that implement it in the same way you do with email. Like, I think that would be a significant step forward for the internet. That's one layer. And that's just, let's build some technology. Maybe it's blockchain. Maybe it's not, right? Mastodon exists. That is a federated Twitter protocol. 
that is not the blockchain. Yeah, but it hasn't gotten that popular. And why is that? I would argue a lot of it is because there's no central namespace. The problem, the user experience with Mastodon is the same with RSS. You can't just go be C. Dixon on Mastodon. You're C. Dixon at a server, right? And a lot of why Twitter won is they had a global namespace, I think, like as opposed to RSS, and you could have a follow graph. The problem with RSS and with Mastodon is the internet right now has no common database. There's no publicly owned database, right? There's no place to store that follow graph. So that's what happened is companies stepped in and they said, we'll store it for you. Like, yeah. you know, and then once they stored it, they ended up ha- having monopolistic network effects. One way to look at a blockchain, it's a, it's a community-owned database. It's the first time outside of DNS, I'd argue is the other one, but DNS and a blockchain are the only examples in the history of the internet where you had databases where the community owned it, not a company. The, the other exception might be Wikipedia. It's a nonprofit. I think that, you know, has its own issues, that architecture, but I, I'm a big fan of Wikipedia. But Yes. Yeah, so that, that's basically my argument would be we could take things like Mastodon RSS and make them feature parity with Twitter and Facebook if we're willing to use some of these new technologies like blockchains. Okay. So that's protocols. I, I could argue on the fine edges of that, but I agree. Like a giant global database that is anyone can trust. Conceptually a great thing. Then there's what you're talking about, which is like user acquisition and creators monetizing their content which seems totally divorced from protocols to me, right? If I, let's say this Ethereum exists, there's a giant global database that anyone can trust that is distributed. I make a video. I want people to watch it. Ethereum doesn't help me get people to watch it. Some aggregator of audience, like a YouTube is what gets people to watch it. Or like a marketing campaign. Like I can put my face on the side of city buses to try to get people to watch my video. Those are like the ways you can do it. So the way I look at a social network is there's a two-sided market, right? So there's and those, or two things they do. You do distribution, they do monetization. So like take YouTube, right? So the, or, you know, take Spotify, right? It's both distribution, it's acquiring an audience, acquiring users, and it's monetizing those users, right? In Web2, those two things are bundled. I think that there's a really interesting opportunity right now to unbundle those two things. Maybe I'll give you an example. Music, I think, is a really interesting area, and we have a number of investments there. Two of them I'll mention, Royal and Sound XYZ. And what both of those websites do is they let musicians basically create NFTs and other kinds of new sorts of digital objects. Think of the NFT as digital album art, scarce digital album art that also gives you maybe other perks like behind the scenes access in the Discord and other kinds of membership kind of like features, right? Both of those websites, by the way, are live. Sound XYZ, for example, has been live, I think, for three months and every day does two drops. These are not super well-known musicians. And Thus far, we'll see if it continues, but thus it's been three months, but thus far, every one of those has sold out at $10,000 a drop. I believe the musician keeps 95%, which is dramatically different. Let's contrast that to Spotify, right? Spotify at, on their own website argues that they, they advertises they have 8 million uh, musicians and of that 14,000 make $50,000 a year or more and the rest make less. Like you talk to musicians and streaming is not, unless you're, you know, some mega artist, it's not a very good option. In fact, most musicians pre-COVID would make most of their money offline in you know merch and touring why because you don't have these giant web 2 machines sitting in the middle of you and your audience right so i'm not arguing for example nfts are magical new things that that change you know human behavior what they are is a way for creative people to go direct to their audience and bypass these algorithmic advertising driven feeds and thus far the the results are really promising Um, and i think we can we're going to see a lot of new kind of creative ways in which creative people monetize. Now, that's not distribution, as you said. Like these, so think of it kind of like Substack. Like with Substack right now, a lot of people will build their audience on Twitter, but they'll then kind of quote monetize on Substack, right? Yeah, I know a lot of those people. But let me just push back on you. 
we literally just had Steve Aoki on the show. He's doing NFTs for exactly the reasons you described. I understand the argument. Steve Aoki is a famous guy. He can just tweet, I made an NFT and people will buy it. The unsigned musician who's not making any money on Spotify can go to one of your services if they hit scale and put an NFT up and maybe still be in that long tail that doesn't make any money. It's early. I cannot prove a lot of these statements, but I'm clearly betting on them. But I, I think this is the chance to finally realize the thousand true fans vision. Like Kevin Kelly has a famous blog post from, I think, 2002 or something where he says the great thing about the Internet. And by the way, for people like me who are around for the first year of the Internet, this was always kind of the dream, right? Is it, you know, some person who's into some, you know, whatever, I'm into some kind of niche activity that most of the world doesn't love. But there's a thousand people that really, really love me, right, and are willing to kind of do, you know, they patronize me and buy my books and go visit me when I give a talk and everything else. I believe that never happened in Web 2, and it didn't happen because of the nature of the business models, and they're very extractive, and they deliberately do, this is very well known that Facebook will like, for example, will deliberately let you build a big organic reach and then change the algorithm, lower your reach, and make you pay to get back there, right? They are incredibly sophisticated money extraction machines, right? This is why they're so profitable and so successful. Right, but I just want to get back to NFTs as a technology and blockchain as a technology. I, your criticism is a Facebook Right on the money. I don't, it's not that. I'm saying I'm a musician. I mint an NFT. I put it on Royal. What guarantees me that I'm going to sell anything there? The technology doesn't guarantee it. No, you have to have an audience. I just think if you just look at the numbers, so we're investors in OpenSea as an example, and the numbers are like they only have, I think it's 400,000 transacting users, and they did. 4 billion and 3 billion in sales last month or what I don't know the exact number but it's in that ballpark right and if you look at these websites like soundxyz they'll sell at $10,000 and they only have i think they only sell like 30 or 40 NFTs each drop well what they're doing it's the same effect as you see in video games they're cream skimming they're cream skimming the the hardest core fans right sure. yeah like i'm not saying you can't have you have to have fans like i'm not we're not, <laughs> we're, not we're not saying you can't do that but i think you can have a lot fewer i think it's the same logic as by the way video games like if you look at the the stats in video games you know i play clash I've spent too much money on, what is it, Clash Royale. I like that game. Um, you know, other people like Fortnite, things like this. But like, I think I'm probably one of the, the suckers who pays all the money in Clash Royale. But anyways, but like, there's a, if you look at the stats, it's like... Your Apple services revenue. You personally, Chris Dixon. Is- <laughs> yes, yes. No, I'm not, I'm not personal. But I do spend too much. <laughs> but you basically, if you, if you talk to these companies, it's like 99% don't pay anything. Sure. And 1% love it and pay a lot. And I think it'll be the same thing. I think that's basically we're bringing kind of this video game model. And by the way, it's really interesting. Like... Uh, so th- we have an investment. It's called Foundation. I encourage you to check it out. Foundation.app. It's much more of like an artist kind of focused NFT site, right? And uh, there's a few artists that I I've bought their NFTs. Um, there's one S Parth who it turns out I you know I, lo- I saw his art and I was like that looks so cool and it looks kind of familiar, but it turns out he was a, a Halo artist, right? So he's did a lot of the graphic design for the video game Halo, but he never got his name on the box. Like you don't get your name, right? You don't have you know, they don't get credit for these things. So he goes on these uh, on foundation, he sells NFTs. And what's cool is that like, look, I don't get to hang out with Halo, you know, designers, yeah. like, I, I'm a fan, but I, I do venture capital, right. And, and what's cool is that he like DMs me, we talk, he sent me his book, you know, it's kind of this neat mix of like, patronage, fandom, you know, collecting, and it's just kind of a neat new thing that they couldn't exist before. And I, I'm guessing he doesn't ha- I mean, if you look at the economics of these things, he doesn't need many people like me to have it because because and look, it's not that I'm saying I'm giving him so much money. It's just that the Web2 money sucks so bad 
that like it's really easy to be a dramatic improvement. In fact, I'm pretty sure we're going to we're going to do a dashboard to show this. I'm pretty sure that NFT sales this year will pass all of Web2 payouts to all creative people because Facebook pays zero. They have zero rev share. They make all their money in advertising. How many just goes back to the creators? Zero. I know you think Facebook is bad. You don't have to convince me you think Facebook is bad. The bar is pretty damn low is what I'm saying. And so sure. like, I think that we were going to show very quickly that musicians can make a lot more money through these methods than they can on Spotify. And when they see that and, and they see it at scale, I think there's going to be a sort of a giant wave of a transition away from those others. Now, they still may use those those Web2 services for distribution. Like, I don't see us replacing us, Web3, replacing TikTok anytime soon and distribution. But I think we can replace a lot of these things in terms of the monetization. And that reduces a lot of their power and opens up the possibility for like genuine kind of replacement, I think, on the distribution side. Yeah, I'm just at the end of the day, though, an NFT is a is a technological construct, right? It's yeah, it's a, a, it's it, it's the digital ownership. You can di- now you, I think of it as you can now own a digital object, and so but you can, but I just want to like dive into the technology of NFTs specifically to interrogate that claim, but not really, right? It's the like it can contain some code, it can t- contain a pointer to something else. I have many criticisms of Web three. I think. Somewhere at the top of the list under climate, which we should talk about, but somewhere at the top of the list is the actual relationship between you buying an NFT and you acquiring a copy of a song or you acquiring a photo is divorced in the law. It's not a copyright. You're not buying a copy. I mean, you can, by the way. There, but there I think that's people. very fuzzy for many people. Well, sure, sure. Okay, so like the way I think about it, if you buy, a, if I buy a painting, I'm not buying the copyright. But why okay. do I need this technology to buy a copy of a song? I don't. Well, it's just it, it, every other technology you use, the service can just decide to take it away on a whim. You buy a book on Kindle and Apple will just can just remove it. And in fact, I'm sorry, Amazon can remove it and they've done that in the past and you're renting it. You're not buying it. It says it right in the terms of service. Like you buy an object in a video game, the video game's going to go away in a couple of years. Well, like this sure, is- but let, let's say I set up a marketplace where see, people sell me PDFs. What does the NFT give me that a, just sending me a PDF for money does not? What you're buying is a digital object, which is a concept in the same way that a physical object. When I buy a painting, I'm buying, I mean, you can get into the philosophy of what you're buying, I guess. But what, <laughs> I'm, what, I'm, what I'm buying, I think when I'm buying a painting is, you know, a physical object that for me has value because of some philosophical connection that some at some point some artists made this on the page and society decided to value that in a certain way um when when you buy some look by the way some nfts do convey copyright so for example board apes when you buy a board ape you own the copyright to that specific apes and there's no i'm not sure that's true right like to convey a copyright you need a written instrument that's signed and there's nothing it's absolutely true we've done a lot of legal work on it and absolutely true i mean i think there's gonna be some work done on the copyrights i think for example it's there's some ambiguity in the way that the board apes specifically, and I've analyzed a specific contract and had lawyers do it. There's some ambiguity in the revocability. I think that there could be improvements. In fact, one of the projects we're working on is to improve kind of creative commons like remove the ambiguity in a lot of these contracts and come up with standards. So that, for example, one of the things you should know when you get a, an NFT that conveys a copyright, you want assurance that if the company is acquired or some other kind of thing, it doesn't get revoked. So yes. I think there's, I think there's, look, I mean, look, let me just be clear. There, there are, you alluded to some Issues. There are issues in any emerging space. So, for example, sure. you alluded to the the kind of the metadata critique of NFTs that some of the data is not on chain and some is. 
And there's lots of ways to kind of mitigate that. There's, you know, we can talk about the environmental stuff, which I think is another thing which is improving rapidly. And I think there are flaws, certainly flaws today, and it can get much better. I think the copyright stuff, but there's nothing, I don't see it as any kind of inherent problem. And I see it as very analogous to what, you know, I've been involved with multiple kind of computing waves now. And every time there's a bunch of issues and you can look at them either as issues or you can look at them as opportunities for entrepreneurs to come along and solve them, which is how we look at it. I'm with you there. I just think that right now, when I hear about NFTs and I hear about musicians in particular monetizing, it's just something they can sell directly at a, with a lower transaction rate on a different kind of marketplace. And I think the actual thing of it being an NFT might not be important. Do you own your own domain? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, do I ever? Well, I'm sure like you, like I've, I've registered numerous domain names for no reason. Yeah. To me, it's very similar to that. I own cdixon.org, for example. And I, f- I own it because, look, I, I host it at Netlify. If Netlify becomes evil, I'll just switch it over to another place because I control the DNS record, right? An NFT is architecturally very different than other things on the internet. But why should a musician sell me an NFT and not an MP3 file? Um, I mean, they, they could do both. I, but like, why do we think the NFT blockchain scenario here is going to be more successful or more lucrative than a music service that connects people directly to artists at high levels for MP3s? Well, I think there's two things with NFTs. So one is, I, I do think architecturally, it's very different than other kinds of objects on the internet in the sense that most objects are controlled by an application and NFTs are controlled by users. And so it switches the polarity. And I do think that's important. I think that'll be important, for example, as we see the rise of Web3 gaming, where you'll see a whole different kind of class of things where people own characters and other kinds of objects that, that they can take across different experiences. Instead of it being contained on an app, it's contained at the user level. So there's an architectural aspect. There's like you know, a social aspect. Why do people value uh, wearing a you know Supreme t-shirts or fashion or cars, a lot of value in the world is about showing that you're early to something, showing that you are high status, showing that you have great taste. A lot of the NFT culture, if you look at it, is that kind of culture, which is very familiar in the offline world, applied to the online world. And so, you know, hey, I was the first person to buy this musician's NFT. That shows, instead of you sort of saying, hey, I was their first fan, you can prove you're the first fan. Like people value that. I believe people value that. They seem to value that. That's a bet we're making. It could be wrong. Look, this is not proven yet. But early signs are people do value these things in the same way they value kind of things in the offline world that maybe convey status or, you know, taste or whatever it might be. There's also a community aspect to these things. Like my wife has a CryptoPunk and she goes to CryptoPunk breakfasts and CryptoPunk meetups and like it's a culture. I'd say there's two aspects to me that make NFTs different. One is it's architecturally like a domain name. You truly own it. If you don't like how somebody's treating your NFT, you can just move it away. That's not true on the web today. The web today, everything is, is contained in, in an application or a website. And the second is this kind of social aspect to it, that when you own something, it allows you to have kind of different social signals around it. And, you know, everything, as I said, like from taste to status or you're an early adopter or whatever, whatever the particular kind of design of the community and NFT might be. Yeah, I think I'm just trying to make the connection between there's a technology and then, as you're saying, there's a community and a culture. And I would say that you and I have both, were both around in early moments for a lot of different things. And the second the technology scales, the community and the culture changes dramatically. For sure. And I don't – I could not predict I, – if I were you, I would not bet other people's money on the current sense of community or culture being resilient to scale. Look, I guess I would view it as there's going to be, I, I view the internet today as millions of subcommunities. Yeah, and I think NFTs are a way for subcommunities to have kind of cultural artifacts and 
uh, create little kind of economies within those sub-communities. And I would expect, you know, it's a big world. And I think some communities will, and maybe some of the popular existing ones will, will go awry. I think the my bet is there will be uh, many positive communities, including like I think music, music communities are a really interesting example where people come together and they're excited. And now instead of just sort of monetizing through streaming breadcrumbs and algorithmic feeds and things, they have a new way to kind of build an economy and sell things. And that, again, I buy it. I'm very sympathetic to the plight of musicians. The idea that the blockchain is the thing that creates a digital scarcity, that creates a thing you can sell and resell in a pen contracts to. I'm still wondering, I think this is my criticism. I'm still wondering, like, is it the necessary technology or is it just the one that we have? Well, what are the alternatives? Like a lot of the critics, like I obviously get criticized a lot here. This is a controversial space. And and I'm so like, what's the alternative? Like we, the web's been around for 30 years. Okay. Like people say, Hey, you could do this with the database. Like, great. It's been around for 30 years. There's been 10,000 startups funded. I think we've run the experiment of corporate owned networks. We know how it ends up. We're open to all sorts of different innovation. If it's not blockchain, we have a whole firm that does sort of non-blockchain based investing and we always like new ideas. But I guess what for me, a lot of the critics are like, why couldn't you do this with a you know website and database? I'm like, you know what? Like, I mean, specifically, first of all, I've been doing this a long time. Like, I probably invested in that at one point. <laughs> I've invested in a lot of different things, including a lot of ways. Look, I was a seed investor in Kickstarter. I was very involved in crowdfunding. I was a true believer in it. I'm still, you know, I've never, I still own all my Kickstarter stock. I very much believe in that mission. I spent years working on kind of crowdfunding and other kinds of ways to find new ways to kind of monetize creative activities. And I just came to the, I think those are valuable services, you know, Indiegogo and Patreon and other things, but I I think there's fundamental limits and I think it's time to try a different approach. This feels like the right spot to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the environmental issues with running a blockchain network and the difference between proof of work and proof of stake. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US innovate. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Chris Dixon. All right. I've pushed hard enough on why blockchain is technology to solve some of these problems. Uh, Let's assume I buy it. The biggest criticism we've both alluded to now is the climate impact. That to run a global trustless computer and database, you have to use a lot of power. You need a lot of computers verifying the transactions, validating transactions, mining coins, what have you. The criticism, and I think I have it, is I have not yet seen a use case for this stuff that rises to the level that balances out the energy impact or the 
the growing energy impact? So first on the energy impact, I mean, it's, it's very specific to a certain type of blockchain, right? Which is a, there's, so there's two broad types of blockchains, proof of work and proof of stake, right? And proof of work was pioneered by Bitcoin. And, and the idea with Bitcoin is the reason you need some what's called civil resistance method, proof of work or proof of stake, is that these are permissionless networks. Anyone can join the network. Now, the problem with permissionless is that somebody can then spam it. Somebody could say, I'm going to have a thousand computers and spam it. And so the idea that Bitcoin had is there needs to be some price of admission. There needs to be some permit way to kind of prove that you're not spamming the system. And the way that Bitcoin decided to do it is called proof of work, which is deliberately, it's literally, you have to waste energy in order to join the network. That's literally what proof of work is, okay? You have to waste energy. So yes, it does waste a lot of energy, right? Proof of stake says, instead of wasting energy, you just have to show you have skin in the game by taking a certain amount of the kind of network tokens, the Bitcoins, the Ether, et cetera, locking them up in escrow. And if you're dishonest and you misbehave and you don't, aren't a good participant in the network, we take away your escrow. Okay. Two very different methods. Ethereum came out in 2015. And from the very beginning, this is, there's a narrative out there that there was some kind of pivot. From the very beginning, the plan was always to upgrade for proof of stake explicitly as Vitalik, kind of the lead, the lead yeah. person behind Ethereum said, for energy purposes. This is on blog posts from six years ago, right? We have in the last four years not made a single investment in anything that was proof of work based. It was all proof of stake with one exception, which is Ethereum layer one today is proof of work based. Mm-hmm. They're in the very final stages of the, uh, what's called the merge, the upgrade, which I think will happen in the next three months where it will transition to proof of stake. There's already a proof of stake network running. It's just a question of flipping a switch. It's been in, in the works for five years because it's such a big network with a lot of value. They've been very careful. They're going to flip the switch. When that happens, there will not be a single Web3 protocol that is proof of work based. So, for example, like there's Ethereum, there's what's called Ethereum layer twos, Optimism, Arbitrum. ZK Sync, Starkware, yeah. all proof of stake, Solana proof of stake, Celo proof of stake, Near proof of stake, Avalanche proof of stake. The defenders of proof of work would say that there's a strong incentive to use clean energy. You know, I, I won't go into that argument now, but I, I think ultimately the future is proof of stake. And by the way, proof of stake is like Solana has these stats and they have audited stats. A transaction on Solana is very close to a transaction uh, to a Google search in energy use. Although, although I'd also point out, we don't know how much Google search is exactly because, <laughs> because those companies don't publish their energy stats. Like one reason I think blockchains have gotten so much tension, how much energy does Citibank use? How much does Visa use? We don't know because they don't publish it. One of the big differences with blockchains is they're public. And so you can audit it. But anyways, look, I accept that criticism of proof of work, but I think it's unfair. Like I've, I've read, I think, articles in The Verge where they say this is like a pivot from the crypto community to try to answer the energy use. That's just not the case. Like it, the record is there. This has been a long time effort. Promises and, are pro- I mean, vaporware, right? It's vapor till it ships. It's not vapor, but it's, there's literally huge teams working on it. There's, it, it, I mean, uh, we'll see, I guess. But in the next, I think it'll be in the next three three months. Right. I would like to buy a Rivian R1T. There's a huge company working on it. They spent $5 billion. I can't buy the car yet. I mean, you could just be cynical about the whole thing. or you could. I mean, I'm like, not being are, cynical. I'm being realistic. I'm saying I... There's a huge community of well-intentioned people working on this with fully finished software. They're just waiting to flip a switch when they... When they, I mean, so you know, your so. prediction is three months. So it's April 6th. We're talking July 6th. They're going to switch to proof of stake. Definitely this year. I'm hoping three months. Okay. I mean, I, look, I've, I think some of the cynicism is rooted in the fact that I've heard that a lot for the past several years. It's definitely not vaporware. It is very complex software and, and that does get delayed sometimes. So yeah, look, I don't, that's not, yeah, but that's it's not, not my, my criticism yeah. is not, I don't think it's yeah. ever going to happen. It's that we've been hearing it's going to happen for a long time. And once you get to that point, I think some cynicism is warranted. So your prediction is a year, hopefully three months. 
I would encourage folks to understand that there is really a difference in proof of stake and proof of work. But right now, both of the chain, like I, I would say like what you just uh, laid out is a key difference between what you might think of as Web3 and Bitcoin. Yes. And yes. you're saying Web3 is going to be built on Ethereum and Ethereum-like change, which will move eventually to proof of stake. Yes. And the others are, by the way. Solana is, I mean, so there are, by the, just, just to be clear, scaled production networks that are proof of stake. This is not theoretical. Cosmos, Polkadot, Solana, Avalanche. These are all like significant networks with significant value on them and communities, and they're all proof of stake. So this is not like a theoretical, that's not a theoretical concept. The only thing that hasn't happened yet is specifically Ethereum. And look, it's just hard because Ethereum has how many X billion dollars? They they can't screw it up, right? It's 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 fixing the airplane while it's in the air. Yeah, I mean, I asked Steve Aoki, why did you launch your thing on Ethereum and not Solana? And he was like, because Ethereum is ready and Solana is not. And I think that is just a flywheel effect. I mean, we have a lot of companies building on Solana. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Yeah, no, look, Ethereum's a big, it's a network effect. It's a bigger community for sure. I mean, but but Solana's, I mean, it's it's a real network with a lot of a lot of things sure. being built on it. Yeah. But uh, they are in competition. And the but the current, I would call it the leader of that competition is still proof of work with a somewhat unknown switch date. Like we're optimistic, but it's not known. It's software. I've never been known software to have a <laughs> exact, exact date. <laughs> right. I don't know. Fair enough. When, when, when's my novel going to be done? Software is like writing, a, like, you know, I'm writing the, this great book and then when's it going to be done? I don't know. Like it's a, it's a hard, it's a very complex creative act. I, I believe it will be in the next few months, but that's, but, but I'm not hundred percent sure. I would draw a straight line from climate impact to the kind of real world experience of using web three products right now. They're complicated, but they also have transaction fees that swing wildly. Their Ethereum gas fees wildly fluctuate hour to hour. There's, and then Gary Vaynerchuk just had an NFT project where people spent more on the gas fees than the NFTs. What makes any of that usable or predictable for a mainstream consumer? There's a lot of UX challenges. There's a lot, I mean, look, some of these are specific issues like Gary's thing yesterday. I think they were just, in my view, it was just the sort of software bugs, essentially, that could have been mitigated, but it does happen. You'll have a different experience. For example, if you use Phantom and Solana, their transaction costs are a penny, and like Phantom is a super slick modern software. Uh, I think Ethereum, you know, right now, as you said, is a leader. I think that the wallets still need to be improved and will get much better. Like everyone agrees, the gas prices are a big issue, and that's where all of the kind of software development effort is going on the Ethereum team, including this the merge and basically the the various L1 upgrades. I won't go into all the details, but they, over time, will dramatically reduce the gas fees. So I agree with all that. You know, I also, as I said, like my experience, you know, early internet was like text-based command line stuff and having to go set up drivers on your Windows machine. I mean, the big innovation in the 90s in the internet was AOL realizing that you had all this shit stuff you had to put on your computer and we should put it all on a CD and send it out to them, right? I could flip it around on you and say the fact that, you know, Web3 will pay out more to creators this year then Web 2, even though the UX has a lot of work to do, shows what the promise is, right? Like once we fix that, it's going to be really big. I understand the problems with Spotify. We've had executives from all those companies on the show. We've talked about those issues. What I'm just continuing to, to push on is here's this space with a lot of innovation, a lot of energy in every sense of the word, a lot of money, and a lot of criticisms. And I Maybe creator payments is the thing that makes it all worth it. Maybe DeFi is the thing that makes it all worth it. But I would not say that I see a mainstream application that unlocks people's brains the way that the first time I hit 
play on like real player in 1997 unlocked my brain that I was listening to like a British radio broadcast instead of the one for my FM radio. I mean, look, the thing that makes it worth it to me is I think the internet is, I, I don't think it's hyperbole to say the internet is the most important invention of the last hundred years and might very likely might be the most invention of the next hundred years. And it's currently about to be controlled by five companies and they make all the money and they have all the power. And I believe we need countervailing technologies that allow that power and money to be decentralized, to be sent out to the edges, to return to the first year of the web when a creator could go and build an audience and have a direct relationship with them. I can't think of a more important issue. And, you know, I understand these critics who say that the energy use isn't worth it. I think it is worth it to not have the Internet turn out like broadcast TV and have CBS, NBC and ABC. Like, I don't think that's a good outcome. You know, people talk about things like the metaverse. Is the metaverse going to be controlled by meta or is it going to be architected like the web where you can go and you can build your own your own part of the metaverse, you know, bring people to it, have interoperable objects, have people be able to come together using protocols and standards? Or is it going to be, you know, this dystopian Ready Player One kind of thing owned by meta? I would flip it and say, I can't think of a more important issue in the world than the, than the, the economic and governance architecture of the Internet. And if people have other proposals for how to fix that, but, I'd love but, to hear them, you know. But hold but on, hold on. This is my on. proposal. You lead crypto investing at a firm called Andreessen Horowitz. Mark Andreessen is on the board of Meta. Is that a conflict for you? No. As he's on the board in his personal capacity, I have no connection to Meta. We have The firm has no connection to Meta beyond his personal involvement It's there. named after. His name's on the door. It's just not I, I could tell it's not you a, that Mike Bloomberg doesn't run Bloomberg, but his name is on the door. Yeah, I'm just telling you, we have no. I have no connection to them, and I have uh, no love lost between our team and and that company. And we're going to do everything we can to replace them with a new set of companies. I don't know. So, I, well, I'll tell the audience a, a very quick story about how Chris and I first came to know each other, which is you were an investor in Oculus. Yeah. And when Oculus sold itself to Facebook now Meta, I will tell you, you were sad about that. You were not like in love with that decision. So I, I, I buy it. I just want to put it out there. You and I talked then, and I think we were off the record or whatever. Like, you know what I, my honest views on it. The reason they had to sell is, by the way, is basically they, weren't, they didn't have the money. Like, I'll just tell you a story. Like, the, the big thing at the time was the screens. It was the latency of the screens. So people said, VR makes you sick, and they need these special screens. There was one company that made it. It was Samsung. And Samsung was like, don't even call me if you don't, you're not going to spend a billion dollars. <laughs> like, and we were a venture-backed company. And we'd, we'd just written a check for $37 million, I think you know, at the time, which is a big venture check, but it was like nothing on the scale of things, right? And so they were trying to build out this whole thing. And so anyways, at the time, they just didn't have the money. I mean, Samsung, people talk about, you know, defensibility and network effects. And Samsung owns a mountain. They own a mountain in Korea, right? Like <laughs> where, where all of the minerals come from to make those screens. So like you have to go to Samsung. Anyways, the point I'm making is I agree with you. By the way, we could talk separately about VR. I'm, not, I'm just a hobbyist at this point. I think it's a, kind of scary right now that there is no real independent VR and that this is going to turn out to be maybe even worse than phones where there's like just two megacorps that, that, that build credible VR. But look, I agree with you. And I, look, you talked about the money and the venture capital. One thing I'm really happy about now is we don't have to do that again. Like none of these companies, we're not going to sell, ever sell a company to Facebook or Google or anybody else because we, we have enough money now because of the success of a number of these companies in the space and just for a variety of reasons. And we can truly go out and build something independent. That's a lesson I learned, frankly, from, from Oculus and Facebook. So let me just continue to push on this. You've laid out a story of the web, 
web one to web two, web two centralizes a bunch of cool stuff that's happening. Web one, you're saying web three decentralizes again, but you're investing in a bunch of companies that are ultimately central service providers. Like all the challenges we talked about, whether it's climate or user experience or security or whatever, a regular person does not want to think about that. They do not want to take any of that risk onto themselves. They do not want to set up their own web server. They just want to go to Tumblr or Blogger or whatever. They do not want to figure out how to transmit photos to their friends. They just use Google Photos or Facebook or whatever. I see the exact same thing happening in Web3. OpenSea is the dominant marketplace, and almost every app relies on their APIs, and they're going to sit at the center of it. And so maybe the underlying protocols are decentralized, but I think an emerging reality and a real criticism here is that at the end of the day, you, Andreessen Horowitz, are going to invest in a bunch of companies that control the user experience for a lot of people. Let's just take OpenSea's API, OpenSea's API as an example. The way the tech works is they crawl like, the Ethereum blockchain or whatever they support now, Polygon and soon Solana. They crawl the blockchain just like Google does. They index the NFTs and they provide those on an API. Like, for example, we have an investment in an infrastructure company called Alchemy that does the exact same thing. It's the exact same API. I, I don't agree. Like, it's just because it's open data, like the web, you'll have multiple companies doing it. But the web is open data, but Google is dominant because it provides the best user experience. Like, what, B- Microsoft is not a small company. They can't make Bing compete with Google. Yeah, I mean, Google's a very interesting case, right? Because I think a lot of people 20 years ago predicted that it wouldn't sustain. It's, it's you know, because competition's one click away. And there's a bunch of reasons, I think, including the data network effects that lets them do all these powerful things like Did You Mean? And look, there's a whole advertising side, which creates a network effect. But look, here's how I think about it. Like with Web 1, I'm not claiming people are going to directly interact with protocols. In the same way with Web 1, you didn't directly go and interact with SMTP, right? You did it mediated by client software. Right. Like or Gmail or, you know, or back then, you know, it was Hotmail, whatever, Outlook, et cetera. The key difference, though, when when you have a protocol there is that the user can switch. Right. So if their client, if, you know, if I'm hosting with Rackspace or I'm using email through Hotmail and they start misbehaving and starting to charge me too much or whatever it might be, I can switch. Right. That's a big difference than Twitter. Like I'm not happy with Twitter right now. Um, and I can't switch, you know, I've built an audience up over how many years and I can't take them with me with web one, you could take it with you. So to me, that's the key difference. I'm not denying you'll have centralized service providers in the mix to create a better experience. I think the key is, do they get such dominant network effects that users can't switch and therefore they can abuse their position and, uh, you know, change the economics, change the way the algorithms work, et cetera. The way I think about it is you have those centralized intermediaries in there, like, an email client made by a professional software company, but you, the user still has the ability to exit and to switch. And that keeps the companies in check and limits their power. Like, so that's how we think. So this is kind of the Moxie, if you read Moxie's blog post, that was a very good blog post. He's a very, obviously very smart, thoughtful person. But I think I believe that that blog post missed this key point, which is you're always going to have centralized services in the mix because it's just the fact that centralized companies make probably better user experiences than protocols do. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think the question is, do the network effects accrue to the company or do they accrue to the protocol? In web one, they accrue to the protocol. In web two, they accrue to the company. In web three, we're trying to architect it such that they'll recruit to the protocol. And therefore, it will put a ch- natural check on the limit. Now, that's like we're investors in OpenSea. Obviously, we think we'll make money. But notice, it's 2.5% take rate. There's nothing else in web two that's even close to that. They have to be 2.5%. Why? Because you can switch. If they raise it, they're limited in their power. They ended up pricing. They, if you look at take rates throughout the internet, what, the way it looks is things that are, have offline goods like StockX, eBay, and, and OpenSea that has NFTs, they have a much, much lower take rate because they have to because you can switch. 
because you can just go sell your sneakers somewhere else. The, the people that charge 100% are the ones where you can't, you're locked in forever. You build an audience up on TikTok or Twitter, you're locked in forever. That's it. They own you, right? They can charge whatever they want. That's the key to me. I, I think that's kind of a straw man argument that Moxie makes because we're not denying there's going to, I mean, we're investing in Coinbase and like Coinbase is a great example. We're investors in Coinbase. We did great on it, right? But you can switch. If you want to get your Bitcoin somewhere else, you can switch. And that keeps them in check. They can't act like monopolists, right? That's the key to me is that we can build a great web with lots of great services that have all of the advanced functionality people want from Web2, but keep monopolists in check by letting the network effects accrue to community-owned protocols instead of accruing to companies. We need to take another break, but when we get back, Chris tries to convince me that Web3 can build better communities on the web. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Just before the break, you were talking about the larger tech companies and how they effectively operate as monopolies. You said you and Anderson Horowitz were trying to keep them in check by investing in companies that may grow to be larger than them. But I think we should talk about one of the monopolists you can't keep in check. You were once on the board of Coinbase. They're public. You're not on board anymore. But they just put a blog post talking about their commitment to free speech, and they don't want to be free speech martyrs. And basically, the core of it is to get an app on the App Store, you have to do what Apple says. And that's true. That's just true. That's just the fact. Maybe that's changing with some regulations and lawsuits. But right now, that's very true. If you want to sell an NFT, that's a digital good. Right At the end of the day, I want to sell an NFT of my video game skin or whatever. That's a digital good. Apple is going to look at that and say, that's a digital good. We want 30% of that transaction. They have not yet done it for cryptocurrencies. Like, How does this ecosystem develop apps on the phone that let people transact without paying Apple 30% for everything? Because like MetaMask doesn't let you buy anything. OpenSea doesn't let you buy anything on the iPhone. Like my broader editorial view would be like, I'm very much on the side of Epic on that lawsuit. Like, I don't think, I think the idea of charging 30, forget about Web3 for a minute. The idea that a hardware provider can charge 30% 
to every single software provider on their platform. It just just seems like the just like a crazy and unhealthy situation to me. The fact that you can't have alternative app stores or some other kind of choices for app developers and consumers. There's not many businesses in the world that can sustain a 30% tax. Like sure. that's significantly limiting, right? So I think that's a broader thing. And I think like, look, I I, I guess I'm generally a optimist about free markets solving these things, which I, I know is a minority view these days. But I, in this case, I don't I don't think that's the case with the phones. I think they may need, you may just need regulatory intervention because it's just but so- Can yeah. OpenSea hit scale without being able to transact on the phone? I think that Apple will come around on some of this. Like, look, some of these things are technical issues. So for example, Apple has- you know, they want to um, allow for chargebacks. And it's very hard with crypto because it's, you know, it's, uh, it's non-revocable. What if you go, you buy an NFT, you sell it, and then you say, hey, I want to charge back. But that's getting solved. That's like companies like Stripe and others, payment providers are, are, are solving that. So there's some sort of technical issues. I really hope that at some point that, that we can, you know, convince them, we, the community can convince them, you know, it's not a good policy. And look, specifically, I don't think Apple particularly loves some of these social networks. And I think if we can go and show that, like, for example, if we can show this is a significant revenue stream for musicians, as an example, as I talked about before, I think that can be compelling. Apple's a company that genuinely values user privacy, genuinely values creative work. I Like, I, of the big companies, Apple's by far my favorite, as you can tell. I think they're my favorite because they sell a product. It's a very kind of an honest business model. There isn't surveillance and advertising, right? Like, I do think they have too much power and like we just discussed. But I think overall, I think my sense is that they, you know, do support creative people. They don't like the surveillance internet that we've developed. And my hope is that we can... We, the community, can convince them that this is a technology that actually is aligned with some of their goals. Um, and if we can do that, they might loosen up their policies. But look, it's, that's a longer term challenge. Do you think that that's a, like one blocker is, you know, ex copyright lawyers like me come and talk to you about whether you have to have a written conveyance and sign to move a board ape? Fine. The other one I, is. I, I didn't realize you're an ex copyright. All right. So I was arguing with a copyright lawyer on that one. Okay. It's real. I keep it under. I wasn't as good at it, as you can tell. Um, the other one is, yeah, the biggest computing platform that you can think of is mobile phones. And the companies that control those operating systems restrict the sale of digital goods unless you pay the tax. Is that on your brain? Is something that you have to overcome? Because you're not going to get everybody unless you get on the phones. I think that's definitely something. Um, you know, I've, I've gone to Apple many times and presented and tried to argue the things I'm arguing with you today about, you know, these, this is a positive thing that's aligned with them. Um, and then you're like, look at my candy crush purchases alone. I'll support you. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, so, like, I agree. Like we're, we're constantly working on it. Like we both in the sense of here today, talking to you and trying to kind of explain my point of view from that to, you know, just trying to have kind of one-on-one kind of sessions explaining how this technology is going to be aligned with people. So we're, you know, we're constantly working on these things. I, I don't think a venture capital firm ultimately solves these things. If you look at the history of tech, the way these things tend to get solved is going back to your other point, killer products, entrepreneurs go build great products and those great products convince people. So, you know, maybe an Apple exec comes home and sees their kid doing some cool thing in Web3. I don't know how it happens, but that's sort of how it spreads. Um, One of the things that's really encouraging right now is that up until recently, uh, Web3 was dominated by kind of super hardcore tech enthusiasts, et cetera. We've seen a dramatic change in the kind of entrepreneurs entering the space. I liken it to you remember mobile. The way I think about mobile is you had 2007, the iPhone came out, 2008, the app store. There's usually like a year long period where people are kind of figuring 
the kind of what to do out. There's flashlight apps and all that other kind of stuff. And then you had this two or three year period where the real great entrepreneurs entered and you had Snapchat and Uber and Instagram and just like all the kind of things that, you know, most of the popular apps on mobile today outside of maybe TikTok, I think we're built in, you know, it's like 2009 to 11, this sort of this golden period. And what it really takes is this, this new influx of entrepreneurs. And I believe that we might be entering that space now in Web3. This, the level of entrepreneurs entering has gone up dramatically. You know, I have friends who don't even, aren't even interested in Web3. They're just generalist tech investors. And they tell me 50 to 75% of their, of their pitches now are Web3. I hear this over and over, like it's just taken over and, and from a talent perspective, which is what we need now to get to the, so the way I think of it is you get the talent and then you get the killer apps and then you start to really show people the potential of the technology and, and change minds of people like the Apple policies. Casey Newton and Liz Lopato will kill me if I don't ask you about the investment into Yuga Labs and Board Ape Yacht Club. I'll just ask a very simple question. You invested $450 million into Yuga Labs. We didn't. The, the, that was the total round. Let's just use 450. That's all the investors. I'll just bundle you together for that. The standard sort of venture model, you want 10 to 30x returns for a hit. That implies that you're going to get four and a half to 13 and a half billion dollars back. What do you see that generates that valuation when that company exits? There's a bunch of really sort of special things about, about that community, first of all. Um, I think of what they've done is sort of a, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. The community they have, the kind of the buzz they have. There are all sorts of offshoot companies. So, for example, one really cool one is called Jenkins of LA, which is a group of people who they bought an NFT and Board Ape, and now they're going out and creating a whole kind of story and books and movies and all sorts of other things around that community. An area I'm really interested in right now, I'm actually in LA right now. I'm doing a lot of stuff in LA related to Web3. The Hollywood kind of media world is very excited about Web3, I think, for a variety of reasons. I think they just kind of get NFTs and sort of selling emotion and stories in a way that a lot of traditional tech people didn't. I think they also don't love Web2 and are open to new architectures. One idea I'm really excited about is what we call decentralized content creation, decentralized storytelling. So the idea that you'd have a the next Disney or Marvel would come instead of from top down from a from a company would come from an internet community who comes together and using NFTs and tokens and other kinds of Web3 concepts can create stories and characters and actually own parts of those characters and have control over them. And so, you know, they, instead of having to sit there on the sidelines and debate what should be canon on the next Star Wars, they can actually decide that as a community in the same way that Wikipedia took, you know, a, a traditional an activity that's traditionally centralized, like encyclopedia creation, and made it community controlled. This, to me, is the ultimate power of the Internet. So, for example, decentralized content creation is an area that is a very rich ecosystem around the Bored Apes community doing things like that. There's going to be games, there's going to be metaverse experiences. They're taking a kind of a very enthusiastic core community and expanding it much more broadly. So I just want to ask two things. We started this whole thing and I asked you, how do you make decisions? And you're like, single decision makers make better decisions than communities. If I had to point to creative work, I know for a fact that single creatives or small teams of creatives make better decisions than committees. One need only look at Hollywood itself for this the answer. Why do we think that that is going to produce better work? Why do we think that will produce the next Disney or Marvel? I don't think the architecture is going to be, you know, 100 people all equally doing stuff. I think there could still be hierarchy, but it can be kind of bottoms up emerging hierarchy as opposed to, I mean, do you think the current system of like you have to move to L.A., you know, wait tables for eight years, 
and know the have the right connections to like get your screenplay read. No, but if I had to give you the argument for Web two, it's that Web two provided a dramatic counterbalance to the current system that enabled many many more people to to participate. I agree. I think Web two improved on it, but I don't think it's actually changed the way that sort of the economics and governance and all the other kinds of things and in, for example, Hollywood actually works. You know, I think the idea that you could have fans that truly have kind of participation and ownership in communities and and storytelling is a really exciting idea. Yeah, but I would just argue like Netflix is a success. And part of the reason Netflix is a success is famously it lets directors and showrunners do what they want without undue burden from the studio. Sure. I've never created a TV show. I have friends who have, and they tell me they have these, you know, significant groups of writers rooms and it's a very collaborative process with a, you know, a group of people. Um, I don't think that those writers rooms, everyone has equal say, but I think that they appreciate the, having a diversity of inputs at least. And then maybe you have a few key decision makers, right? And so you think that somehow this model will return, will create four and a half to 13 and a half billion dollars worth of value. Look, I mean, we have a portfolio. And I think w- when we make an investment, we say, if this goes right, could it be, as you said, 10x plus? And do we think it's a great team? Do we think it's a big idea? Um, do we think they're building it in the right way? And then we, you know, if those are all yes, we make the investment and some will work out and some won't. If we're good, you know, the, the, you know some significant portion will work. Um, so, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not saying I'm, it's guaranteed to work, no, but I think it's compelling. I think it's a big vision. It's compelling. The team is great. You know. The structure of that deal is wild, right? There's a new coin called ApeCoin. It's controlled by a DAO. The DAO is not part of Yugo Labs, but Yugo Labs gifted it an ape, and then they own the ape now, and they've issued a lot of the coin. You have, like, I think you got a bunch of the coin, like 15% to investors, they own the Hugo Labs owns twenty five percent. It that is just a very complicated deal structure to me. And it, it, at the end of the day, you ended up with a bunch of tokens that are going to increase in value right away. Doesn't that feel like you're already having a stock or a security of some kind? Just briefly on securities laws. So the way there are many assets in the world. There are commodities, oil. There's gold. There's baseball cards. There's art. A subset of assets in the world are called securities. And there's been you know hundred years of case law. The most famous Supreme Court case is, is uh, the Howey case. And there's a thing called the Howey test, and there's sort of five factors for determining something is security. And one of the important factors is you have a group of managers um, who have significant asymmetric information that needs to be disclosed to the public. And that's why you have all the securities laws is based around disclosure and fraud and everything else. Like our general view is that the goals of the SEC and the goals of the Web3 community for different reasons are actually aligned. The Web3 community wants to reduce, to remove pockets of asymmetric power. The SEC wants to remove pockets of asymmetric information. And that the way to do both, if you think about something like Bitcoin, is it's so decentralized at this point that there is no, you know, we don't even know who Satoshi is. There is some core development team, but no one, I think, credibly thinks that they actually have knowledge that influences the price of Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been deemed by various regulators to be a commodity similar to something like oil or gold. Now, if you take gold, there are certainly people in the world who are experts in gold, people that run gold mining companies, people that have hedge funds that try to predict the price of gold and use satellite imagery and all sorts of other things. But ultimately, there's no gold management company. There's no, there's no, you know, 
sort of Tim Cook of gold, right? There's no, there's no, uh, who knows like the quarterly earnings next month or something like that. That's the key thing here. And so we've done a lot of work. We have a six person legal team, including, you know, a bunch of former regulators and other people done a lot of work thinking about these topics and guiding our companies to make sure they build these things in the right way, such that they're truly decentralized networks. There is no way for them to kind of go and take power back. And there is no asymmetric information such that they violate securities laws. Um, so, you know, I think it's a great, it's a great question. I think the fortunate thing in my mind is that, as I mentioned earlier, that securities laws and the kind of the ethos of web three happen to align and that they both want highly decentralized networks. And so that, that's what we try to encourage people to do when, when they're in this space is like build it in the right way and build it in a way similar to Bitcoin. And I think Ethereum as well, where it's truly owned and operated by the community and not by the original creators of the system. And ideally, to your question of structure, my personal preference, which sometimes I, you know, we're able to get and sometimes we aren't, is everybody's 100% aligned by owning tokens. And I think ultimately, many of these projects should not even have companies. They should just be like the way Linux is. Or, I mean, Linux has a foundation, but ultimately, <laughs> Linux is just like, it's like, a, there's, there's one guy is really important to Linux. Okay, well, whatever. Open source software in general, sure. I think most people would agree is generally software that's created by communities. I think that these crypto projects, these Web3 projects should should ultimately be services that are you know owned and operated by the communities and the, the company should go away. They should They should dissolve over time. That's my general view. And that, that's like the vision of progressive decentralization, right? Like eventually they're going to, you're going to start with centralized and you're going to go. It's hard to get there right away. And there's a whole set of kind of safeguards that, that you can put on both like kind of legally and a whole bunch of other things along the way. But yes, it's hard. It's hard overnight to get there. Look, Bitcoin itself, Satoshi was on the forums coding for the first two years before he or she disappeared. Right. And so like, it's hard at first, you, you know, it's very hard because people like look at you like you're crazy and they're not going to go and join your project. So that there's often like people working on it in the early stages. So, so let, let me just make the direct open source software comparison then, because you brought up Linux and flagged it in my head. So do you think Yuga Labs should go away and eight coins should become its own protocol? Like we started with protocols and user experiences and how they're different, like apply that to board ape yacht club. We don't run the companies and they'll do the, mm-hmm. the, the projects will do what they want to do. I, I would say my general view is yes. My general view is, is I would like to see a world where there are maybe there are some companies, as I mentioned before, like here, they're building client software, kind of the coin bases, the interfaces, layers will probably be companies. But I would like to see a world where these protocols are all there, there is no company. Maybe there's a foundation that sort of guides it or something kind of like the Linux foundation or something like that. But generally, I'd like to see a world where these are simply open protocols and that they're. And there are no companies, for sure. That's definitely the, to me, that's the strong form of this whole kind of thesis. Yes. One of the things I worry about a lot here is we are talking about financializing culture in a very deep and meaningful way. We're talking about coins and securities and tokens and buying things. If I'm a kid right now on the internet, and I have a lot of money. Maybe the income streams for artists are bad, but I have access to culture in a remarkably open way that never existed before. That doesn't get you a thousand true fans. It could get you a million true fans around the world. K-pop exists because of the internet, right? As a phenomenon, the way it does. You start gating that with money and tokens and special privileges. Haven't you created just an ecosystem of landlords of culture that only allow rich people to participate? Look, I think it's the opposite. Look at gaming. To me, gaming is always five to 10 years ahead of every, every form of media, right? And so that goes back to 
they were very early on the internet. You know, you had things like Steam, like digital distribution. You had um, just, you know, just technically and creatively, I think games have become kind of the center of culture in a lot of ways. In gaming, the dominant model now is the League of Legends Fortnite model, where you get the game for free. They still make a ton of money, but they do it by monetizing a different layer of the stack. They monetize the, the kind of the status layer, let's call it. Like, why do you buy the bunny suit in Fortnite? Because it's high status or whatever. You know, it's funny. It's cool. It's whatever. Like League of Legends, why do you buy the elven wolf cloak? You know, in those games, everything's cosmetic. You don't buy anything that makes you better. So for- Fortnite makes $2 billion a year on cosmetic goods, right? And so what they figured out is if you make something so – and by the way, let's talk about let's talk about another thing, streaming, right? You might have thought video games, because of the way their business model would reduce kind of the sharing. In fact, it's the opposite, right? Stream Like all the video game companies, they lean into streaming, even though – like, you know, Nintendo fought it for a long time because it was a violation of copyright. And they realized the marketing benefits outweigh the, the scarcity copyright argument. So if you look at gaming, I'd say gaming is freer and more open than ever, and yet makes the most money because they monetize a different layer of the stack. And to me, NFTs are very similar. It's, vir- it's virtual goods for the rest of the internet. That's what NFTs are. And they're going to let musicians monetize the way Fortnite monetizes. So just give away your music. I think ultimately that will be the dominant model. We're not pushing that on anybody to be clear, but I, I think ultimately people will opt for that. Give it away have it stream, have it remixed, have mods, do all the things a video game world does, make it as popular as possible, get it as embedded as culture as possible, and then monetize something out. Monetize the status layer, the NFT layer, the virtual good layer. Video games figured this out. This is not that revolutionary, right? Um, it just gives that technology to everybody else. So yeah. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think it will not only make uh, media more open, I think it will also, because look, incentives really matter. Now that you have a new business model, I think it'll let more people go do pursue creative acts that today can. Like yeah. how many visual designers are stuck at Pepsi doing the, you know, the 8,000th, like whatever stupid Pepsi ad when they could be out like doing cool art or something. I mean, I just think there's like, you know, but there's, I think we just learned Pepsi is not an A16Z LP. Um, I'll end here because this connects directly to the Steve Aoki episode. He proposed the same thing. And my question to him was, you're a huge musician and you are telling me music itself will not be valuable. It will carry no intrinsic value. It will all be marketing for something else that's worth That's money. like saying the video game doesn't have value. Like, of course it has but value. But you're telling just, me all the music will be free. It will have no money. People but will not mean, transact but, for but music. But video games are free. It doesn't mean video games are valueless. It means that that's just not the way to, but, it's, but not, the it's not the right level. But the video games are like a shopping mall now, right? You buy clothes in them. Music is not that thing. I, I don't think they're like shopping. I mean, I think like League of Legends and Fortnite, these are great games. I, I, don't, I don't agree with you. And they're free. But they're, in, they're, they're, they're transaction platforms in a way that a song is not. Well, they, they just they just realize that it's better to have it to have it be incredibly popular and, you know, and spread around the world. But like the Internet is a giant propagation machine. It's a meme propagation machine. You can, you can try to fight it. It's, <laughs> it turns out it's not the best strategy. The best strategy is let the meme propagation machine do its thing and monetize a different the status layer. The layer above it in the stack is how I think about it, it was what video games figured out. And it's why video games have become the center of of culture. Video games is $150 billion a year business. $60 billion of that is virtual goods. The entire music industry, I believe, is like $20 billion. And like, it's not just about money, but that is important because that money should go. That money goes to fund those musicians. And you could have more people pursuing their passions as they should be. This should be a golden period for creative people on the Internet. You, have, you push a button and six, people, six billion people have access. The only reason it, it isn't is right now that's mediated by these five companies with algorithms and that are designed to extract as much money as possible and advertisements, which I think are mostly not helpful for anybody seeing the 18th Hawaiian vacation ad and my music feed or whatever, like I don't see the societal value of that. So 
you know, that would be my argument. And, and I think in video games is a proof is a proof case where it hasn't, you know, you, you, people who listen may not like video games. I don't know what the audience likes, but I think we're in a video game golden period. They're mostly free because they figured out this other way to monetize. And I think we should run that. Look, I'm not 100% sure, by the way, in any of this stuff, but I think it's an experiment worth running. We're going to try to run that experiment. We're going to try to fund people that run that experiment. And I guess I would just ask the audience to be open-minded about whether that's an experiment worth running. They don't have to believe everything I said today, but I do think it's an experiment worth running, and it's a big, important topic as to how the internet is structured, you know, economically and governance-wise over the coming decades. Well, I think that's an amazing place to leave it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on, for engaging, for taking on the questions. I appreciate it. We'll have you back in three months when Ethereum goes to proof of stake. All right, all right, all right. Thanks a lot. Good to see you. Thank you again to Chris Dixon for taking the time to talk today. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Also, if you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Just a reminder at the end, Decoder was nominated for a Webby Award for Best Tech Podcast, and you can vote for us. There's a link to the voting in the show notes. We would really love your vote. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton DeSimone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen.